No, backpedals. He says, I cannot redeem it or I will be ruined. I'll be ruined. In what ways would that ruin his inheritance? Maybe he's got some racial concerns about allowing a Moabitess into his family line. Moabites and Israelites were not friends. Maybe he didn't yet have any heirs, and so this one tri- so having an heir through Ruth all of a sudden would pass all of his inheritance into a Limelech's line. Or maybe if he had heirs and somehow this transaction and having an heir through Ruth would split up his inheritance and dissipate it throughout his heirs with Elimelech's heirs. Okay, so for some reason, there's some financial cost here that makes this guy step back. He, he consulted his accountant, and this does not look like a good deal anymore. And the narrator can't help but draw your co- contrast between these two people, between Boaz and John Doe. The, the first guy here, he wants to redeem it for the stuff. But Boaz's emphasis has always been on the people involved. And the first guy wants to expand his influence Boaz is willing to suffer the loss that might come with this transaction. And the first guy is focused on protecting what's his. And Boaz has been nothing but generous throughout the whole story, giving and giving and giving. And while the first guy is concerned about protecting his line, his legacy, it is his name that is forgotten. Left out of the annals of history, Lost to all memories. He's just a Mr. So-and-so. Mr. John Doe. While Boaz's name is preserved for three millennia. These two characters are like the, the perfect foil for each other in this opening scene. And John Doe does, does the normal thing. He does the expected action. He's acting rationally and quite honestly ordinary in looking out for his family's interest. But he pales in comparison to the character of Boaz, which kind of reminds us of an earlier point in the story. When Naomi is returning from Moab to Israel with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah does the ordinary and expected thing. Return to your family, find a husband, continue your life. By itself, Orpah returning, we wouldn't have anything bad to say about her except when you compare it to the extravagant kindness of Ruth. That's when Orba's actions are dim. Limits, within reason, primarily looking out for their own interest. And they would likely blend in quite well into our homes, our work, exercising unnatural loving kindness, and that's the part that transforms the story. That the, the John Doe has rejected it, and Boaz is set to redeem it in verse 7. At an early, earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. And this was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are witnesses today. All the people who were at the gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house 
like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. And may you be powerful in Ephrathah, and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Okay, so first got to deal with the sandal stuff. Right, so the narrator explains what's happening, which is helpful to us, but also probably uh, apparently helpful to the people reading this book. So it was, it was, the story was actually, or this book was actually written about three or four hundred years after um, the events took place, and so the, apparently this practice had fallen out of practice. And so the narrator, narrator clarifies what's happening here with sandal transactions. So, but long story short, like the attorneys have reviewed the documents, the narrator has their seal, and the witnesses are present. Transition, transaction is going to be locked in. And Boaz announces the legal action he's taking. And he's resolving the two issues at play. The land and inheritance is staying in the family. And the family name will not disappear from history if he can have an heir through Ruth. And then listen to how the witnesses respond. Because from here on, the, it's only the crowd people who do the talking. Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi no longer speak for the rest of the book. But you have the crowd and the neighbors who begin doing all the rest of the dialogue through the book. And, and listen to how they respond. They offer praise first for Ruth. And they do so in an astonishing way. Right? Near, nearly every time so far through the book, Ruth has been mentioned. She's been called a Moabitess. Seven times. And the Moabites were not friends with Israel, and the constant mention of her as a Moabitess doesn't let you, the reader, forget. She's a foreigner. But the elders of the city say, may the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah. And so if you, if you brush up on your Old Testament history, you remember that Rachel and Leah are the most prominent women for any Israelite, the matriarchs of the entire nation. These are the two women that mothered the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the declaration of the elders over Ruth is a welcoming of a refugee with open arms. Here, come into our midst, and we pray you'd be like the greatest among us. And then second, they heap praise upon Boaz for his actions the role that he is playing as a family redeemer and the efforts he has gone through. May he be influential and prominent throughout Ephrathah. And with kind of an explicit subtweet here of our anonymous John Doe, may Boaz's name be well known. And then thirdly, they ask that their house together, Boaz and Ruth, their house might be like the house of Perez. And everyone standing at the gate was of the house of Perez. And they are living in the land of Judah, specifically the land where the descendants of Perez settled, Bethlehem. And so Perez fathered a great house. May your house be bountiful. Because remember, the goal of this marriage is that they would have an heir. Otherwise, this has failed. This plan has failed. We need someone to continue the line. And so they're blessing, praying that God would give this family an heir. And remember the time period that we're in. Right, we're in the period of the judges, which is one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. And Israel wasn't really a nation at that time. Rather, like, they're like a loosely related group of roving tribes with, with chieftains. They're not a nation yet. They had no clear leader calling them to follow God's law. And the era of the judges contains some of the most despicable acts in the Bible. But in the midst of all of that, you've got this cluster of people in the small town of Bethlehem. 
acting honorably before God and his law. And here in chapter 4, you get a wider glance at this community. And so besides the loving kindness of Boaz and Ruth, you now have the elders at the city gate who not only grant Ruth and Naomi all the legal rights that they're entitled to, they exert enough positive pressure on John Doe that he can't manipulate the situation for his benefit, and then they declare blessings on Ruth as an outsider now being welcomed in to the nation and to the community. This small community in Bethlehem is acting in a way that allows God's kingdom and his plan of redemption to thrive. In a period where righteousness was sparse, this story is a beautiful little microcosm of what it looks like for redemption to move when God's people follow God's law. And the community is also on display in the next section. And so let's continue in verse 13. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Okay, there's only, there's only two times in this book that the Lord is said to explicitly do something. Right? The Lord's actions have kind of been in the shadows throughout most of the book, but there's only two times it says the Lord did something. Most of the time we have actions of people, but you have in chapter 1, verse 6, it says the Lord visited his people and brought food back to the land. Okay, so the famine was reversed when the Lord stepped in. And then here in verse 13, it says the Lord granted conception to Ruth which points very clearly to the work that the Lord is doing here, what he is redeeming. He is redeeming the land and the family of Naomi. And you got these villagers, villagers who rise up and give a beautiful insight into what's happening. They're going to tell you what's really going on here. These same villagers who saw Naomi returning from Moab, who welcomed her, and they tried to call her Naomi, but salty Naomi rebuked them, insisted on being called Mara for she was bitter. But now that community will not let her forget the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord. Okay, right, so again, back in chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5, it says, Naomi's husband died, and she was left without her two sons. This is what happened in Moab. And after they lived in Moab 10 years, Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. Naomi was left alone and empty. She was bitter, but piece by piece, the Lord has been putting her back together again. And those, so those same women who saw her in her despair and her bitterness now call out to her, blessed be the Lord who has not left you. The Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer. You were left alone. You are no longer left alone you thought you were empty never to be filled again but the lord has redeemed you throughout this little book one little message is screaming out redemption is on the move in naomi's life and so for for four weeks guys we've been digging into the details of this book with all of the weird cultural 
and complexities of a threshing floor and a harvest and transactions at a gate from a city 3,000 years ago. Because we are doing this because we are seeing redemption at work. Something, something broken is being set right again. Something lost is being found. Something empty is filled. Redemption is on the move. And, and this statement right here from the neighborhood women make it very clear that Naomi is the lead character in the story. And that Boaz and Ruth and everyone else is just a supporting actor or actress. Everything has been leading up to this child and how this child will complete Naomi's story. And we would expect it to end here with Ruth holding her newborn. But that's not the picture that the narrator gives us. He doesn't leave us with that because the main conflict of the story isn't about Ruth. It's about Naomi. And so the final picture of Naomi we are left with is the perfect capstone of her story. You just imagine her sitting on her front porch in a rocking chair, coaxing an infant off to sleep. Her redeemer. And the neighbors, neighbors recognize that and they declare, a son has been born to Naomi, not Ruth. And the faithfulness of the community here, they won't let you forget or miss what the Lord is doing. The community won't let you forget that. They're going to call out the Lord's loving kindness that's clearly on display. So the testimony to everyone watching Naomi's life and to the neighbor women and the elders at the gate and the readers here today is that redemption is on the move, that God is active in the lives of his people to restore them. And, and so for some of you today, you'll, you'll get to the conclusion of this story. And it's going to stir a few praise and celebration of the Lord and how he works in people's lives and how he provides. And that's a beautiful and great response to this narrative. But there are others of you today who have gone through this journey with us through Ruth, and you have seen the tragedy of Naomi and the gracious acts of redemption in her life, and you arrive at the end of the story here, and you wonder, what about me? That's all fine and dandy for Naomi, but why doesn't my story look like Naomi's? If this story is about declaring the Lord's power and creativity in redeeming broken people, then what about me? You might relate really well with the story of Naomi, but only chapter 1. Because nothing in your life yet resembles chapters 2 through 4. Maybe you've been through the famine in your life where your house of bread had no bread. And you faced the desperation that forced you to walk the dusty Exodus trail to Moab. And perhaps death followed you to that foreign land and left you alone. What does this book have for you? Does the Bible promise that you too can have a redemption story like Naomi? I believe with all of me that the purpose of this book, and really the purpose of, of all of Scripture, is to show us the tremendous, gracious, and redeeming God that we serve. The point of this book, the point of Scripture, is to show us Him. And yes, this book is promising you something. It's promising that this God of redemption who takes the lowly, the poor, the broken, the outsider, the widow, that this God of redemption can be yours. But no, your story probably won't look like Naomi's. It could. Maybe all of the brokenness you face in this life 
will find a beautiful restoration and your end days will leave you rocking an infant, knowing that all is well. But probably not. But here is what I do know from the whole of Scripture and from the testimony of this little book of Ruth is that our God is a God of redemption and restoration and he is setting everything right. And you're not going to see the culmination of his work in this life. But you will see it beyond this life. We have a hope of restoration and glory that extends beyond these days. And so what Ruth is crying out to you is that we have a God that you serve, and this is the type of work that he is doing in this world. He's taking broken things and he's fixing them, and he is redeeming them. And the end of the book gives us a little hint at that, at how much larger this story is than just Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. So Naomi's story complete, but that's not the end of the book. And you might be tempted to skip over these last few verses because it's a bunch of odd ancient names that you can't pronounce, but the author is doing something here specific. And so let's read the final four verses. Now these are the family records of Perez. Perez followed Hezron, fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Abimadad, and Abimadad fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Solomon, and Solomon fathered Boaz, and Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed followed, fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And this book was written, like we said, a few hundred years after these events took place. And so everybody reading would have been very familiar with the final name here. Israel's greatest king, King David, comes from this line. David's great-grandmother was a Moabitess. And so while it's clear throughout this book that God is redeeming Naomi... God is also at work redeeming Israel. Remember, we're in, the, we're in the air. This book begins with no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. This book begins with no king and very little hope, and it ends with Israel's king. God is at work restoring the people of Israel. He is authoring redemption for them here, providing Israel with a king. You see how the Lord is playing chess pieces slowly, setting things up for his perfect plan. Something even greater comes from the line of Boaz. Somebody greater than King David, because a little over a thousand years after David, another king is born in Bethlehem. It's no surprise to you guys. See, God isn't just at work redeeming Naomi. Nor is he just at work in Israel, giving them a king. But the Lord is authoring redemption and restoration for people from all times, all places, all nations, through his son, Jesus. And so, while the name of Boaz is famous, as the elders declared, and and the name of David is most famous in all of Israel, we are gathered here because of a different name. Another name that comes from this line. And Paul declares this in Philippians 2, and we'll close with this. This is the name of Jesus that comes out of this book of Ruth. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you guys pray with me and we'll close? 
Lord, we long for your redemption to be complete. We see how your spirit has worked in scripture to point us to who you are. We see you as a redemptive God. And I pray that our ears would would not be deaf, that our hearts would not be cold, and that the God that you are declared to be in scripture would make us new, would revive our hearts to trust in you. We thank you for this little book of Ruth and how it puts your glory and your power to redeem on display. And through Jesus and in the Spirit, to the Father we pray. Amen.